0: So, if you've spent any considerable time with me at all, you would know that I'm not naturally at home on the stage. Um, I'm far from someone who naturally gravitates towards the spotlight. Um, This, like being up here in front of all of you guys, um, this isn't necessarily my comfort zone, Uh, and that's how it's always been. In fact, I'm actually much more outgoing and comfortable in a situation like this than I Was in the past. Um, I'm actually legitimately beginning to enjoy preaching. I love this experience. I love that I've been able to do it more regularly lately. Um, But I definitely didn't used to be that way. Uh, It used to be pretty terrifying for me to speak or even just be recognized in front of a large group of people. Case in point, in college, um, I was involved in a campus ministry and One of the things that we did at the end of each year was do something called senior talks. Usually, at our large group meetings, the the campus ministry staff would be the ones to give talks. But towards the end of the spring semester each year, whoever was going to be graduating that year, they would give a couple people the opportunity to give a talk and to share what they've been learning uh, over their experience and time in college. So as my senior year was coming to a close... This was actually a huge source of anxiety for me. Um, I would think to myself, what if they ask me to speak? What if they want, to, want me to give a senior talk? I didn't want to do that. I was petrified of having to do that. The, the thought of getting up in front of a big group of people was terrifying. Uh, it was the last thing that I wanted to do. What if I fooled myself? What if I made a fool of myself? What if I disappointed people's expectations of me? Uh, what if I didn't appear as wise or godly as I wanted to come across to people? I didn't want to risk any of that happening. I didn't want to give a talk. Well, as our senior, as our senior year was going by, I was talking to one of my good friends. This was a little bit after spring break, so the year was sort of winding down at this point. And uh, we were talking, and I was asking him about how his week was going. And he told me that he was nervous about an upcoming senior talk that he was asked to give. And my reaction, I was shocked. He was asked? I mean, I, I, expected, I expected this particular friend to be asked to, to give one. But I was thinking, what about me? Had they asked everyone already? Had my opportunity to give a senior talk come and gone? I knew... Honestly, that the answer was yes. And in that moment, instead of feeling relief, I felt defeated. I was disappointed and sad that I hadn't been asked. Confusing reaction, right? As I said, I should have been relieved. I had been anxious because I didn't want to speak in front of everyone. I didn't want them to ask me. I was terrified to speak in front of everyone. I should have been happy that I had dodged that bullet. But instead, I was devastated In that moment, the only question that was running through my head is, what must they think of me that they didn't ask me to give a talk? It certainly wasn't what I wanted them to think of me. In that moment, I realized that I had been seeking to achieve a certain status in their eyes, and I had failed to achieve that. It was pretty crushing for me for a long time, even though I tried to pretend that it wasn't. So isn't that sad? Because of my attitude, Really, there was no way I was going to be happy in this situation. I had, I had put myself in a lose-lose situation. Either I was going to be terrified about giving a talk and maybe tarnishing my reputation, or I was going to be devastated because I hadn't been esteemed enough in their eyes to be asked to give one. On both sides of the coin, I was allowing myself to be controlled by what others thought of me or what they might think of me. Can you relate to that? As we continue our sermon series, I'm Worshiping God in Our Emotions, we're going to look at this morning how we can worship God by combating our fear of man. Though it's not used in this psalm in particular, the Bible uses this term of fear of man to describe occasions when, like I did in my story, we allow others and their opinions of us to control us. In my story, I feared man because I was worried about what others thought of me, either what they could end up thinking about me if I gave a bad talk or what they thought of me that led them to not asking me. Um, Either way, I was letting their opinions control me. I was fearing man. And when I say man, I'm not just saying specifically men that encompasses all mankind, all humans, men and women. We're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 62, And in this psalm, David is seeking to worship God by combating his own temptations to do the same thing. As I'm about to read Psalm 62, pay attention to how David seeks to worship God in the midst of ridicule and rejection from others. So if you haven't already opened there, open up to Psalm 62 now and follow along with me as I read the passage. Psalm 62 says this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balance they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. David, the king of Israel, the man who at this time had unparalleled fame and esteem in the eyes of his people, is nothing to them now. We don't know the specific events that are the background for this psalm, but we know David has been betrayed and rejected by people he once considered his own friends. They pretend to be his friends, they are deceitful as the passage says, but all they do is lie and seek to ultimately do him harm put yourself in David's shoes, how would you feel if everyone you loved and cared about forsook you and turned their backs on you? What if they took it a step further and even sought to hurt you? That is what David faced when he was writing this psalm. Wouldn't that be devastating? It's it's honestly hard for me to think of a more demoralizing situation to be in. It's hard enough to handle just simply disappointing other people, let alone to be utterly rejected by them and to be harmed by them, especially people that you once loved and that you thought loved you. But how does David respond here? His response is not one of despair and hopelessness. This is not a psalm that's that's a lament. It is one of confidence and trust. And his explanation for such a response is summed up in verses 1 and 2. Look at those again with me. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. This, in a sense, is David's thesis for the entire psalm. His message in the psalm is this. Fear of man dies in the soul that waits on God alone. Let me say that again. Fear of man dies in the soul that waits on God alone. Instead of experiencing the pain that comes from rejection, he was able to find solace and comfort by waiting on God alone. Let's learn from Psalm 62 and David's experience so that we might kill the fear of man in ourselves. The answer is found in waiting on God alone. To understand exactly what that means, though, let's start by considering our reason to wait. Do you struggle with loneliness? Have you ever given in to peer pressure? Are you afraid to share your thoughts or even your faith with someone because you don't know how they will respond? Do you work hard to please or gain the approval of someone else? Do you need your spouse to love you? A yes answer to any of these questions points to a fear of man in your heart. And I assume, I assume that you've responded to at least one of these with a yes. I mean, I'm not married, but for all of the other ones, I can answer all of those as yes. We are all affected by those around us, which makes sense given that we are made in the image of a triune relational God. So it makes sense that we would be affected by each other. That's a right response. But we are inclined to let people's influence over us become control over us, and it affects our ability to experience joy and contentment. It's at that point that it becomes fear of man, and we must battle against it. It's sin. Follow along with me as I read verses 3 through 8. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him, God is a refuge for us. Do you see what's happening here? David is feeling the weight of rejection, and he is fighting to wait on the Lord rather than succumb to that weight. He's exhorting himself and others to trust in God alone for our salvation, hope, and glory, rather than trusting in other people to provide that for us. David was obviously not getting that from the people in his life. He had to seek it elsewhere. And the reality is that none of us can seek that from the people in our lives. Other people can be a source of incredible joy and comfort a hug, or even just a smile can pull us out of deep sadness. Having someone tell us that they are with us and that they aren't, aren't going anywhere when we're struggling is one of the greatest encouragements that we can receive. I can't tell you how my heart has been lifted up out of grief when someone has said something like that to me. For those of you who are married, think back to your wedding day when your spouse vowed to commit his or her life to you and you to them. A loved one can make you feel happier than you ever knew was possible with just the right word or action. Sadly, though, the opposite is true, though, too. Someone can make you feel worse than you ever thought possible with just the right, or I guess I should say wrong, word or action. Think about it. Think about one of your worst moments, when you felt worthless or less than nothing. It might have been a result of criticism or spiteful words from someone. Maybe it was your love going unreciprocated. Maybe someone betrayed you or your trust. You might have gone through the pain of divorce or adultery in your marriage. It could even be that no one has said or done any of these negative things to you. But that's the problem. You've been ignored and forgotten. And it seems like no one even notices your existence. Few things can hurt as deeply as these things can. I know this personally. Having gone through depression numerous times in my own past, I can say that the worst aspect of depression, at least for me, was feeling the feeling of loneliness and isolation that came with it. The reality is that people have the ability to both lift us up to the highest of heights, but also they have the ability to throw us down into the deepest, darkest valleys. We are profoundly affected by one another. And we can easily begin to center our lives around other people's opinions of us. But such an approach to life will only disappoint us ultimately. And it's how we are not meant to live. David makes that clear in verse 5 when he calls his own soul to wait in silence on the Lord. He's calling himself to divert his attention away from other people's thinking, other people's thoughts and what they might potentially think about him. And he's attempting to center his focus and thoughts on God and his relationship with him. And what does he say comes from waiting on God rather than fearing man? It's in verses 1 and 2 and he restates it in verses 5 and in verses 5 through 8. He says that his hope is from God. That God is his rock and his salvation. God is David's fortress and glory. He is his refuge. He will not be greatly shaken as long as he waits on God alone. God provides strong security to his people. This will not disappoint. Our first reason to wait on God alone is found in knowing that it is what we, that will bring us stable joy in this world. Nothing else will. Have you ever worked desperately hard just to hear the words, great job from someone? I can't tell you how many times I have done that in my life. I have spent so much of my own life trying to please other people, to be commended by someone. And I know that I'm doing that for their sake, ultimately, because of the disappointment that I feel and how terrible I feel when I think I've failed or when I have failed. It's awful, and I know that I'm not alone in experiencing that. Think about it for yourself. Who are you trying to please? Is it your parents, your spouse, friends, a boss or coworkers? maybe even people on Facebook or Instagram that you don't even know very well or you might not even know? Our joint contentment is not meant to rise and fall with these people's approval of us. Our joy and contentment is meant to be steadied and maintained by our unchanging and consistent God. As David says, hope. if our hope is in God, we will not be greatly shaken. That does not mean that we can't legitimately be hurt and saddened if others hurt or disapprove of us or reject us. But their reaction does not ultimately control how we feel. It does not prevent us from experiencing joy and peace in God. With waiting on God, we can always have a foundation of contentment in his love for us. It goes deeper than that, though. Fear of man is a worship issue. That is is the other reason we wait on God. When we fear man, we ascribe worth and glory to man. When we wait on God, though, we ascribe worth and glory to him. Think about it. If you are ultimately concerned with what others think about you, then you're implicitly expressing that what they think or how they feel is more important to you than anything else. Your well-being is dependent upon them. You're making them your God and who you serve and worship, ultimately. However, if we wait on God rather than fear man, We are communicating that he is more important to us than anyone or anything else. We are glorifying him and displaying his worth and opinion as supreme. That is worship of the true God rather than a false God or idol that we can make others. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. It says this, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Who is David commending us to hope in? Who does David show us is worthy of our worship? It's certainly not other men and women. It's certainly not each other. In verse 9, David is telling us that status is nothing in the eyes of others. How heavy is a breath? Think about it. If a breath, if you breathed on a scale, how much is the weight going to register? It's not going to say anything. It's going to stay zero Breath won't even register as anything on a scale. Its weight is negligible. That is what David likens our earthly status to. Even the combined status and renown of all people is nothing, as the passage says. And why? It's because God's power and glory is incomparable compared to ours. Compared to God, any amount of fame or recognition or celebrity status is meaningless. Whether you're a recluse who never interacts with the outside world or you're the president of the United States and with all the power and influence that he has, it is less than a single drop of water in the world's oceans. It comes and goes just as quickly too. Status is not something to seek. It is not something to pursue. In verse 10, David is acknowledging that some people will do anything to gain fame and glory. They will even extort others and rob them. They will sin to gain that fame and glory in the world. But it is vain. No matter how minor, no sin is worth it. Have you ever simply exaggerated the truth to improve yourself in the eyes of someone else? You're who David is addressing in verse 10. Do not hope in such things. You are sinning to get nothing. You are rebelling against God to receive no reward. Even if you don't sin to obtain renown in this life, don't put your hope in the renown that you do receive. The Lord might grant you wealth and esteem. He might grant you influence in the eyes of others around you, but it is an empty prize. Enjoy it, but do not let your heart cling to it. Use it for his glory, not your own. Again, we know this because all power and love belongs to God, as verses 11 and 12 say. The phrase, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, you see that in verse 11. That phrase is equivalent, in a sense, to say, this is definitely, this is really true. Um, In Hebrew, repeating a statement strengthens its validity. Um, It strengthens and reinforces what you're saying. Um, Jesus often said, truly, truly, I say to you, it's the same idea. It's reinforcing that what David is about to say is definitely true. David here, by saying that, is saying he's reinforcing that God is most definitely the possessor of all power and all love. He alone has steadfast love, which he gives to all who display their trust in him through their works, which is what the final statement in verse 12 is referring to. His love is our reward for faithfulness. Friends, we choose to wait on God alone because God is infinitely more worthy of our worship than anyone else is. Human beings are fallen, Weak creatures who will disappoint each other all of the time. No matter how well intentioned we are, we cannot save each other and we cannot perfectly love each other. I count many of you in this room as some of my closest and dearest friends. And as one of your elders, I take my call to shepherd and to care for you very seriously. I love you deeply. And I care about you more than I know how to express a lot of the time. But even in light of that, I know I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to fail you at times. And the same is true with Chet and the same is true with Caleb. We're going to let you down at times. We can't, we're not perfect. We don't perfectly love. We're not perfectly powerful. I'm not powerful enough and not loving enough to save you and give you what you need in a savior. I can't change your hearts like the Holy Spirit can. There are times when I desperately want to be able to do that, but I can't and I know I never will. And the reality is, if you're married, your spouse can't do that. Your friends and family can't do that if you're not married. Friends, none of us can provide that for one another. So do not fear people by putting your hope in them and their views of you to make you happy. They will fail you. You will fail them too. Wait on God who is unfailing. Wait on God who is truly powerful and loving enough to deserve your whole heart and your worship. Wait on him because, as I said in the beginning, fear of man dies in the soul that waits on God alone. But what actually does that mean to wait on God alone? I've called us to do that. I've called us to wait on him rather than fear God or to fear man. I've called us to, to if we wait on him, that that fear of man will be put to death in us. But I haven't really explained what waiting on God actually means. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what it means to wait on God alone. And though it isn't explicitly stated, the psalm in its context make it clear for us what waiting on God in silence means. Look with me at verses one and then five. Verse one says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And then verse five says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. So do you see the similarities and differences between these two verses? The first half of each statement is basically the exact same. But the second half of each phrase is different. Um, this, the second half gives the reason why David is waiting on God alone in silence. In verse 1, he waits because his salvation comes from God. In verse 5, he waits because it is from God that his hope comes. So, putting those together, David is waiting on God alone in silence because it, is, because it is from God that his salvation and hope come. Again, we know this is true because all power and love belong to God. But what else? Let's look at verse eight. Verse eight says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So what we just saw was David was exhorting his own soul to, to uh, wait on God alone. And now he's calling all people to do the same. But he's phrasing it differently. Waiting on God in silence is synonymous with trusting in him at all times and pouring our hearts out to him, as verse 8 says. Now also consider the context of the psalm. David is writing this psalm to commend us to trust in God rather than man. He's calling us to put our hope in him rather than in the pleasure of others and achieving fame and prestige on this earth. As we saw, again, in verses 9 and 10, So what should we make of all this? What does it mean to wait on God alone in silence? To wait on God alone in silence means to rest in our relationship with him rather than our relationship with others. In other words, to wait on God is to trust that his love for us is enough and sufficient. His love is sufficient to allow us to experience the fullness of joy. We lack nothing if we have God's love. Our joy can be complete as long as we have him. The person that is waiting on God alone would never say, yes, God's love for me is profound and great and I need it, but I still need my spouse to love me a little bit better, to be fully happy. The person that's waiting on God alone would never say that. There is no qualifier in the heart of one who is waiting on God. The one who waits on him is satisfied and content knowing that he or she has the steadfast love of God even if all other relationships failed. David knows this all too well. That's why he's writing this psalm. That's why he's commending these truths to himself because that's what he's experiencing. Here in Psalm 62, he is trusting that though all of his friends have betrayed him, he can still rejoice because he has the love of God with him. God is his refuge and his fortress. Therefore, he need not worry if he's rejected by others, even if it's everyone else. The only opinion that truly matters is God's, and David, knows, and David knows where he stands with God. David is exemplifying what it looks like to wait on God in this passage. Now keep in mind, our silence in our waiting is not because we're expecting God to tell us something. Our silence is due to a quiet faith that is confidence that God is enough for us. Instead of actively seeking to garner approval and love from other people, we silently remember and hope in the love that we already know we have from God. David is calling us to silently wait, not because we must literally be silent, but because there is no need to to put forth effort to gain love. It has already been freely offered to us in Christ. Let me read a passage for you from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 10. I would suggest turning there in your your Bibles as well. This passage was written to Israel. So as I read this passage, note that though this was written years after David's time, This is the same loving God that that David was trusting in. David said in Psalm 62 that God's love is steadfast, that steadfast love belongs to him. Well, here are some of the promises that show us just how steadfast his love really is. So follow along with me as I read Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 10. It says, fear not, For you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called." For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Let me read verse 10 one more time. I think this verse is incredible. incredible. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You guys, this is the incredible love that God has for us. The covenant of peace was established and confirmed through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This whole passage that I just read, Like the famous passages that most of us probably know from Isaiah 52 and 53 are all prophecy of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died for the sins of all who repent and believe. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. Our fear of man, our concern over what others think of us, our putting others above God in our own lives is worship of them. That is sin. That is rebellion against God. And we have been, we have separated ourselves from God. We have separated ourselves from his love. But if you have turned from the life of sin and placed your faith in Christ, you are, you are united with him so that he has paid the penalty for those sins that you have committed. And you are the recipient of his perfect righteousness and holiness. You are spotless and blameless before God in Christ because you are clothed in Jesus' righteousness, not your own. No effort you can put forth can clothe yourself in righteousness good enough. But Jesus has obtained that. Jesus did live a perfectly righteous life for us. And we are clothed in that righteousness we are, when we are united with him by faith. The sin that once separated you from God has been washed away and you have been brought into fellowship with the Father. He loves you unendingly just as he loves the Son. In his high priestly prayer shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus said this. This is John 17, verses 22 and 23. He says this. The glory that you, that is the Father, have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Through our union with Christ, we are not simply observers of the Trinity. We are not simply onlookers who will stand eternally in the... New heavens and new earth stand eternally amazed as we observe the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other. If it was just that, that would be incredible. And we could spend an eternity doing that. That would be beyond anything that we could ever imagine. That in and of itself would be an incredible privilege. But we have been granted even more than that. So much more than that. Through our faith in Christ, we are actually brought into fellowship with the Trinity. Just as the Father loves the Son, the Father loves us. Just as the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies us. That's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. We are the body of Christ that are brought into perfect love and unity the same unity and love that is present within the trinity already that has been a part of the trinity since before creation began and that and when christ returns and consummates that reality we will experience that fully and perfectly in ways that we can even imagine now friends in christ what love do we lack this is what david is getting at in psalm 62 This is why he can call us to wait in God and not to fear on man. With the love of God, we don't have to worry about the fleeting and failing love that others give us. We have been brought into a perfect and holy triune relationship to share and to participate in. That is why David's hope and salvation was in God alone. He knew that he lacked nothing if he had the love of God. And he knew by faith that God's love for him was real and steadfast. He hoped in the Messiah to come. He didn't see him, but we have seen him in Christ. We know who that Messiah was. We know what he has accomplished for us and how he accomplished it. Yes, it hurts to have friends reject and betray us. David experienced that. He knew that. And we know that, probably to a lesser degree, but some of us have experienced maybe something as intense, or at least it has felt as intense as David experienced. But as David wasn't shaken to his core by that, we need not be either. David could still rejoice and take comfort in knowing that the infinitely great and powerful God still cherished and adored him as a son, even if no one else did. And that is true for us as well. David is calling us in the psalm to this same comfort. The fear of man truly does die in the soul that waits on God alone because we take these truths and realities to heart. We rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. Now this has huge implications on the way that we think and live. I want to highlight a couple of those practices now um, that we should keep in mind as we seek to wait on God in our daily lives. So these are the practices that we have as we wait. First, I'm going to speak to a number of different people, and we'll see how this psalm I trust addresses all of our different states and heart conditions. Fear of man expresses itself in many different ways in our lives. So we're going to look at just a couple of those. First, I want to speak to those of you who struggle with loneliness. This is oftentimes those who are unmarried, but those who are married are no exception to this. In fact, in many ways, the pain of loneliness in marriage can be even worse because marriage in marriage, you are one flesh. The marriage covenant is built on the commitment to have loving and intimate unity together, but loneliness is a sign that that marriage unity has been broken somehow. That can be immensely painful and extremely and a deep source of loneliness for people. But either way, though unmarried or unmarried, if you struggle with loneliness, I pray that Psalm 62 has been uh, a source of hope for you. I know, the suffering that lonely, I know the suffering that loneliness can cause. I feel that often myself. Um, if you're in Christ, though, you are not incomplete. Your eyes, you do not lack something that you need. You have the full attention and affection of God. His eyes are always upon you and his heart is always with you and for you. He hears you and knows you intimately. His love is never failing. You will never be forgotten or overlooked. Your potential for joy and happiness is not less than someone who is married or isn't experiencing loneliness. Do not believe that lie that says otherwise. That is the fear of man. Jesus would not have given his life for one that he is not absolutely loyal to and loving towards. And singles, to you specifically, you are not in a waiting room. I know it's easy to feel that way, but do not put your hope in a day when your name will be called or your number is drawn and you can get up out of that waiting room and step through the door into a wedding ceremony. The love of a spouse is a sweet and precious gift from God. But it is not necessary for your joy or contentment. It is only one expression of the love that you already have in Christ. And it is a fleeting expression. Your spouse will let you down. Death will inevitably separate you. He or she cannot offer you the eternal love that God alone can. Wait on God alone in silence to the one who is discontent. Seek to love others rather than to be loved. Waiting on God means recognizing that we do not need the love of our spouse or friends to achieve emotional well-being. Unfortunately, today, secular counselors and secular psychologists and even many Christian counselors function out of this need-based, needs-based philosophy that says that basically... We all have, in a sense, this love bucket that needs filled. Um, And if we're unhappy, probably the source of that is that it hasn't been filled by the people in our lives. So our spouse hasn't expressed their love to us well enough, or our friends haven't expressed their love to us well enough. This emptiness or um, lack of love being filled up... um, is a source of our psychological or emotional discomfort. This might seem all right at first glance to think this way because experience really does tell us that in a sense we do need love and and that we implicitly crave it. But it misses the point of Psalm 62. It is in fact a manifestation of the fear of man, this line of thinking. Rather, Psalm 62 teaches us that we have all the love that we could possibly need from God already. His love is sufficient for us. Therefore, we do not need more love. On top of that, the gospel goes further and teaches that since we have the full love of God, we are called to give rather than to receive. We glorify God and Christ and put the love of Christ on display when we love sacrificially rather than seek to take it in from others. This, this is also seen in our willingness to forgive others even when they are resistant to forgiving us or when they continue to sin against us. We must fight to believe that it is truly better to give than to receive, and it is better to love than to be loved. Now next... I want to speak to the overcommitted. You're the ones who say yes to people even when wisdom suggests that you should probably say no. Perhaps you're seeking to please someone. Perhaps you are trying to save someone in in some form or fashion. Know that that they are not your master and you cannot be their Messiah. Trust in God's sovereignty and trust that you do not need to earn anyone's love. Your salvation comes from God, as David reminds us. Christ is your righteousness, and you have the full approval of the Father through him. He alone is your hope and your rock, and you are his good pleasure. Wait on Christ in silence. Rest in the freedom you have in knowing that no effort you put forth can increase the love that God already has for you in Christ. Now to those who have been ridiculed, rejected, and shamed by people you love, either justly or unjustly. You might be like David in the psalm. As it says, he's bowed down like a leaning wall. He's demoralized. Maybe you're in that same position. I am sorry. Take heart and don't fear man. God's eyes and hands are upon you. He is your fortress and your rock. He will not let you be greatly shaken. His grace is working in you at all times. Pour your heart heart out to him and trust that he is with you. Your glory is found in Christ and not on this earth. And finally, I want to speak to those who may have not repented and placed their trust in Christ yet. Friend, wait on God alone. Until you give your life to him, You will live for something that cannot save you. Fear of man will grip your heart and control you. As Psalm 62 verse 12 says, God renders to man according to his works. God's judgment is coming. And on that day, no earthly fame or glory will help you. It will not avail you at all. Choose the path of faith. Choose the path leading to God's steadfast love. That path leads to eternal life and joy everlasting. Have faith that God knows and will change your heart. Believe me when I say that it is a wonderful truth that the fear of man dies in the soul that waits on God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, so many of us experience fear of man. There are so many different ways that it manifests and expresses itself in our lives. God, help us to recognize those expressions of it. Help us to recognize when we are idolizing and worshiping others rather than you and that we would turn our hearts, that we would repent of that by waiting on you alone, that we would trust that your love given to us through Christ is enough for us, that it is sufficient. God, help us to rest in your steadfast love. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.